Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to A Matter of Survival, the future of Taiwan arms sales. Please welcome Walter Lohman, Director of the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Center. Hi, thank you all for coming out, and uh, thanks to our online viewers uh, for joining us for this discussion of Taiwan arms sales. Uh, the, the broadcast will be uh, archived and pushed out in, in uh, due regard. I, I, I promise you that. So we should get a lot of uh, a lot of coverage of this uh, event today. Uh, I also want to thank our co-hosts for the program, the U.S. Taiwan Business Council and Rupert Hammond Chambers. Uh, Rupert is my counsel, uh, my partner on many things, and uh, a really good friend and a great guy. I'm so glad he could he could work with us on this. I'd like to take credit for the timing of the program. <laughs> um, and maybe I should, you know, I could see this stuff going on. I've been in touch with Pelosi's office over the last six months, but, but no, I wasn't. Um, the, um, the, our speakers know this has been in, in, in the works for a while. We've been trying to put this together. When we conceived it, our, our motivation was really to plug into both the threat that is facing Taiwan today, evidenced uh, every day, in fact, more and more, even before the recent uh, crisis, and also to look at the ferment that's going on in the policy world around arms sales uh, to, to Taiwan. Um, there's so much more attention, magnitudes more attention nowadays to Taiwan, um, and that's a good thing. It means more ideas out there, more people talking about it. Um, you know, in a democracy, you value ideas and the interchange between ideas and people discussing these things and, and coming up with solutions to problems. So what we're here today to do is to unpack some of those problems, uh, sorry, uh, unpack some of those solutions, um, look at the threat that's, that's posed to Taiwan right now and think about some of the things that are going on in the Hill and the administration to address Taiwan's need to deal with the threat. Um, to start us off, we're very pleased and honored to have with us General Jack Keane. General Keane is a foreign policy and national security expert who provides nationwide analysis and commentary and speeches, articles, congressional testimony, and through several hundred television and radio interviews annually. Uh, it's hard to miss him if you turn on cable news at, at, at any given night. His advice and counsel is sought by CEOs and senior government officials to include presidents, cabinet officials, and many members of Congress. He's a member of numerous boards and foundations to include chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. He's a member of the Secretary of Defense Board, uh, Policy Board and the 2022 Congressional Commission on the National Defense Strategy. Uh, general Keene, a four-star general, completed 37 years of public service culminating in his appointment as acting chief of staff and vice chief of staff of the U.S. Army. Among General Keene's numerous awards, he was the first military leader to be honored with the Ronald Reagan Peace Through Strength Award. And in March of 2020, General Keene was presented with the Presidential Medal of Freedom at the White House. General Keene has made multiple trips to Taiwan and the region to meet senior government officials and policy leaders to discuss strategy and security in light of China's aggression across the Taiwan Straits. We very much look forward to his opening comments to kick off our conversation, and then we'll turn to a panel. We'll have some Q&A, and then we'll turn to a panel a little bit later. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks, Walter. Um, this isn't going to be a long session, but hopefully it's a pointed session and, and uh, it's got some substance to it. Also want to thank uh, my dear friend Rupert Hammond Chambers, uh, who's been deeply involved in uh, Taiwan affairs for years. And all the trips I made to Taiwan, uh, the deal with uh, President Tsai and, and her military and policy leaders, uh, Rupert was there every, every bit of all of that and provided us uh, really great insight. And it's quite extraordinary that a, a current international crisis is occurring on the day we're having this discussion. And I'll, and I'll certainly get into some of that, the so-called Pelosi visit. But I really want to, the backdrop for this crisis is something that's been happening, and I, and I think it's a positive thing, and that is a, a new China baseline. I mean, we had a center-right government that President Trump led, and now we have a center-left government that President Biden is leading, and they both have something significantly in common, and that is they agree that China is the United States' number one security threat. And as such, they reflect how the American people feel, and they also reflect bipartisan support uh, in the Congress. And this is uh, quite new. And I think that it's going to be enduring, and it's going to affect us in terms of policy formulation, you know, for years to come. We see the same thing happening in Australia. Center-right government under Morrison turned over to center-left government under Albanese. But yet, their foreign policy central issue is China as a national security threat. We've been here before, obviously in the Cold War, 40 plus years of the Cold War. And we had multiple presidents in dealing with that, uh, both Republican and Democrat. We had a common strategy of containment, but each administration figured out themselves how best, what policies would work best against that. And there were certainly differences over those 40 years and how to deal with it. As it will be going forward here, uh, dealing with the uh, with the threat of China. China and the United States don't want to call this a Cold War. It ha seems to have all the tenets of it. Certainly the ideological pinning for it, a Jefferson democracy opposed by a Marxist-Leninist communist uh, state. The reality is that I believe the United States and China have a common view here also. They don't want to label it a Cold War because they don't want people to make a choice, make a public choice. And, and, and this is what's different with the Soviet Union, who always had struggled with their economy, put a disproportionate amount, as you will know, into their military. China's economy is intertwined with the world writ large. And the fact is, is that a number of countries have China as their top trading partner versus uh, the United States. Again, getting back to people don't want to make a, make a choice. So I don't think we're, they're going to define it as such, but we are in a different era in, in dealing with China. And obviously, we have other multiple serious threats with Russia, Iran, North Korea, radical Islam, which complicate the spectrum that our policymakers involved in national security and foreign policy have to, have to handle. In some ways, Despite the existential threat with the, with the Soviet Union, the bio, bipolar nature that that was, this is much more challenging 
to deal with the multiplicity of threats in a world that's so intertwined and so interdependent. The, the actions that we're seeing um, in China, I think all of us agree that any hope that the West had that in terms of economic reform and the introduction and robust nature of developing uh, market-based society, uh, economic reforms, that political reform would follow as a result of that, that, is, that hope has is, is been extinguished. I think we've come to a commonality about this, that we don't see any political reform on the horizon. If anything, we see more threat and more aggression. The PRC under President Xi, I believe he's the most ambitious, aggressive, and malign leader since Mao Zedong. Uh, he has increased uh, repression at home and increased uh, aggression abroad. He's seeking regional and global domination, and he wants to upend the United States' power domination in the world today. Those plans and policies and execution will be carried out every single day. The PRC's aggression the last 10 years under President Xi has been the most pronounced as it pertains to Taiwan and is increasing every single year, undermining their civil society and their democracy, military aggression in the air and the sea, and literally attempting to cut Taiwan off from the world in terms of diplomatic relations and what we're visiting here with an international crisis that's surrounding a visit by a, a politician and a prominent member of our government, obviously a Speaker Pelosi. And they've been quite successful. I think Taiwan is now down about six or seven diplomatic relationships. And they've been quite successful in denying us, self-imposing on ourselves, a restraint and our visits to Taiwan and things that we'll do, and I'll get into that in a little bit more detail. They certainly are t attempting to weaken the resolve of Taiwan and, and certainly undermine the direction that they're taking and force a capitulation of that state uh, as being in the orbit of China. If you've been to Taiwan, you know that that's not the case at all. There is no capitulation. There's a strengthening of the resolve. The people in Taiwan think of themselves as Taiwanese versus Chinese. And it, that's somewhere around 80% of the thought process. They are thriving as a democracy and a high-tech capitalistic society. And if you're in and among the people in Taiwan, like we have been many, many times, it's not any different other than it's an Asian culture, but it's not any different than what you would find in any major city or rural area in, in the United States. Young people and middle-aged and older people going about their lives uh, in a thriving democracy and, in, and enjoying that democracy very, very much. So President Xi, uh, who was seriously violating the, the uh, the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979. I mean, that act was promoting the United States and China agreed to preserve stability and security across the Taiwan Straits. Now, there's a lot more in the report than that, but that's the seminal agreement that was made. 
And these violations that have been taking place are so serious, in my judgment, and they're becoming more aggressive every single year, that the United States has to come to grips with that and also make a declaration that if Taiwan is going to, uh, excuse me, if the PRC is going to attack Taiwan, that the United States will come to their defense. It is time to make that statement. Japan has certainly made that statement. And, and this statement is warranted because of President Xi and the PRC's violation of the Taiwan Relations Act. <laughs> Remember, the agreement was to promote stability and security across the Taiwan Straits. And what have we been watching with this aggression in the last 10 years and what we're witnessing uh, today? It's time. Make that unequivocal statement. You know, the president, I think, has made it two or three times, and then his staff have kind of pulled back on it. But that's where kind of he is, uh, certainly in, uh, in his response to a question. But we don't make a policy formulation like that in response to a hey you question as you're going out the door. This is a speech and, and a written policy declaration that has an underpinning of why this is important to United States security and, and the security and stability of our allies in the region itself. Well, where are we in, re in reference to a potential conflict with Taiwan? We don't know what the timeline is going to be. I mean, we have people just reported recently, somebody in the intelligence service saying the window of opportunity is 18 months. Admiral Davidson said when he made it, we're on a path about next three to five years, Admiral Davidson, the former Indo-Pacific commander. There's others that argue that's longer term, but we, we honestly don't know. What we do know is President Xi time and time again has made the statement that if it's necessary, he will take Taiwan by force. And I would suggest we take him at his word. We have a similar leader in Europe who made these proclamations concerning Ukraine. And I think we have quite dismissive of him for a number of years. And we all know what has happened here. And he's using remarkably similar language that Ukraine has always been a part of Russia. I have a historical cultural justification for what I'm doing. Does that sound familiar with President Xi and his, his concerns and obsession about Taiwan? It does. So let's take that at his word and take it seriously so it manifests itself into policy formulation. His options, the option that people talk about the most is the D-Day type invasion. And he wants us to talk about that one because it's a binary choice between peace and war. And you go around and say, are we going to go to war over a D-Day invasion dealing with Taiwan? And you're going to get different answers to that. And that's what he wants us to be talking about. But there, that is likely the most dangerous. It's the most dangerous, but it's not the most likely. I actually think it's the most unlikely. More likely is what we're experiencing today, a quarantine of sorts. But a formidable quarantine would stop air and sea traffic going into Taiwan. A blockade is an act of war. He would likely, likely permit some economic transit 
and trade to still go on so the Taiwanese people are not starving, but they would be able to control air and sea uh, entrance and egress to Taiwan. Another option is put some troops down on Taiwan's islands that are much closer to mainland China. Some of them are right there on, off the coast of mainland China and see what the reaction is. And these options are much more in sync with the following of their preeminent military strategist Sun Tzu, who most of us in the United States have very high regard for, by the way. And his first principle is defeat your enemy without having to fight your enemy. So use intimidation, coercion, innovation, imagination, anything you possibly can to break the will and resolve of your opponent. And that is what China has been up to for years uh, in the Indo-Pacific region, certainly trying to intimidate and coerce and bend to their will without actually having to fire a shot. The D-Day invasion is something, if they were going to do that, we would see that coming for some time because it would take considerable buildup to be able to accomplish something like that. And certainly that is the scenario that we play war games against because it's the, indeed the most, the most dangerous scenario. The United States options, I think, uh, are pretty clear in front of us. Number one, stop self-censoring ourselves in speech as we have been doing for years and we've been doing it around this visit. We've got people standing at a podium in the White House unwilling to say that, that Taiwan's an independent nation. That's self-centered speech. President Tsai believes she is. She's self-governing. She's got an active democracy. But we're afraid to use that word. So we find other words. It, that's an oversimplification, but this is the reality of what we're doing. We self-deter ourselves. I mean, it's extraordinary the degree that we are self-deterring ourselves. The, the Speaker Pelosi's visit, certainly as a catalyst to have this conversation, but Rupert and I sat in a room with all of their military leaders discussing, you know, how to deal with the China threat. And you talk to them, they don't talk to a single United States military leader about that. No military leader comes and talks to Taiwan military leaders about the threat. But we have war plans to defend Taiwan. That's a presidential decision whether that happens or not. We have war plans to do that. But do we synchronize those war plans with Taiwan military? No. Do we ever play tabletop exercises with them? No. Do we bring in policymakers like Jake Sullivan, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense? to deal with national security policy, to help formulate this together? No. This is self-deterrence, and we've been doing this for years, and it has got to stop. Can you, if the United States has to fight a war against China over Taiwan, China outguns us and outmans us. They got more ships, more airplanes, more fighters, more bombers, more offensive missiles, more defensive missiles than the United States has in the region. This would be a challenge for the United States. The loss to personnel and high capital assets 
would be on a scale we have not seen since World War II. How do I know that? Because I played multiple war games on this scenario. And just as recent as a few years ago, in 2018. And as a result of this congressional commission I'm on again, I'm likely going to play a war game this year on it, uh, and pretty soon, I think. This is a formidable challenge, and we're not even doing the basic building of relationships with an ally a president may ask us to come to defend. That makes no sense to anybody, but we are self-deterring ourselves from doing that. We have got to arm and assist Taiwan. Rupert to get into some of the specifics of it. There's a significant backlog that the State Department has caused because they believe they know better than Taiwan military and what their needs are. They are focused on one scenario only, the D-Day invasion scenario, and what weapons the State Department believes Taiwan should be holding. Taiwan is not focused just on a D-Day scenario. They're focused on the other scenarios. I didn't get into all of them, but I got into most of them, which requires different military capabilities to deal with that. And some of those other scenarios are more likely. So give them the weapons they need and get it to them as quickly as possible. Training. We've got to do training. Don't have our guys go there and take uniforms off and play this kind of phony charade. Let's get real units in there training real Taiwanese units with real capability enhancement is what we need. And then also participate in the military exercises. I'm focusing on the military aspect of this uh, for obvious reasons in terms of uh, what my background is and also thinking that possibly some of our Iranians aren't aware of the things I'm talking about. I'll end on the Pelosi visit bungled from the outset, leaked by somebody in the administration, I think, trying to probably force a, uh, a cancellation of the visit. President making an offhand comment that the military is not in favor of it. That's not true, by the way. The only thing the military do is provide risk analysis, which is what they usually do. And then the Chinese spun it at that point because they saw opportunity. They saw opportunity uh, to get the United States actually back down and not execute the visit. Uh, fortunately, we did, we did not do that. We're in a, this crisis will pass, certainly, but the challenges are not going to pass. And the United States has got to wake up and face what we're really dealing with here and make some policy changes and also some serious execution changes as well. Thank you very much. Well, if we, um, if we got behind schedule, I'm glad to say it was the general's fault that we're behind schedule. It's the army that put us behind schedule, not the civilian side of this. But, um, but I, so I think we only have time for maybe one question. Uh, and I want to open it up to the audience for that. But I don't want long, awkward silence. So is there somebody? <laughs> yes, right here. Yeah, wait, we'll have a microphone for you. Yes, uh, this is Tina Chung with a 
Voice of America, Chinese branch. Uh, I'd like to add the general, uh, in, in light of what's happening the, uh, these uh, past uh, a couple of days, uh, the military drills and the missiles firing uh, around circling Taiwan, what do you think uh, for the next phase, what are we likely to see? And uh, could this be a prelude to a more sustained uh, uh, attack or uh, coercion, military coercion activities? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be uh, sustained. And, you know, there's a major event happening here in several weeks with President Xi being enshrined at the National Party Congress and receiving a third term, likely an, an indefinite term. And I, I don't think he's going to want to go in there with, with the crisis. I do think um, that the fact that crisis did occur, he, had a, he played a hand in it in spinning this up. Uh, you know, he has, um, he doesn't have pro large protests at home, but he has some serious dissent over his COVID-free lockdowns and uh, in major cities, 30 million at a time. And he's got some economic headwinds that he's dealing with currently. And like uh, Putin, who likes to distract his population because of external pressure and crisis, uh, and he's done that, you know, throughout his 20 years in, in power. I think President Xi has done some of this, but I don't believe for a minute that he would go into the National Party Congress uh, with, with a crisis at hand. I think this is, will, will end uh, likely on the time schedule that uh, they suggested, but I think the United States and our allies can respond to this, not certainly with firing missiles or anything like that, but with policy formulation, as I suggested, and also with, uh, significant arms assistance and training. Um, to deal with uh, Taiwan and, I mean, to, to assist Taiwan. Hopefully that answers your question. Thank you. Well, I, I also agree with they do need to have uh, missiles, uh, aircraft, uh, and the like, but I also know that they need anti-submarine warfare capability, they need helicopters. Um, they, if, if they're dealing with the D-Day scenario invasion, which you have to contend with, and you, because it is the most dangerous scenario, you have to recognize in that scenario there will be troops. There'll be troops on the ground in Taiwan. Uh, there'll be uh, insurgents on the ground in Taiwan as well. They'll be f facing a full spectrum of enemy, not just missiles and <coughs> um, offensive missiles and air power. And, and amphibious invasion. So I totally agree with, uh, with the Taiwan's military re request for full spectrum capability to, to deal with the worst case scenario and not just give them uh, asymmetric capability for the D-Day invasion, but give them the full spectrum capability to deal with multiple uh, scenarios is what I meant to say. Thank you. Um, General, I know you've got places to be. So well, we I got to do a TV you, interview. To be we don't want to. We don't want to keep you too long. So, thank you very much for for doing this today. It's a pleasure to have you. It's always here. good to be back here at, at Heritage, by the way. Great, good to hear that. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. With that, let me call Rupert up and our and our panelists. Rupert's going to lead us through a discussion of issues involving arms sales. My name is Rupert Hammond Chambers. I work for the U.S. Taiwan Business Council. Uh, Walter, thank you very much indeed for the opportunity to co-host this event with the Heritage Foundation. Uh, we are grateful. 
Uh, the U.S. Taiwan Business Council is a non-profit trade association that represents uh, U.S. businesses uh, in Taiwan, uh, of, of, of which includes a robust and uh, animated uh, group of uh, defense companies um, uh, among technology, energy, and, and so on. This afternoon, as Walter noted, um, we're going to be talking with Lara Crouch, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Dean Chang here at uh, the Heritage Foundation about this important topic of Taiwan arms sales, security assistance. The timing is good in the sense that we have uh, a significant issue to address to sort of frame what we're doing here. Of course, it's, it's not good because obviously we would rather not uh, be dealing with um, challenges in the Taiwan Strait. If some of you want to call it a crisis, do, do so go ahead. Um, how much of it was our, a, a crisis of our own making? How much of it is a crisis of the PRC's making, which of course we are expected to fix. Um, but uh, we're going to hear from Lara and Dean first. Uh, they're going to give some comments, and then if we can leave a wee bit of time, hopefully uh, there'll be some questions uh, from all of you. Lara, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. There's a great deal of congressional activity going on right now. Um, I think that um, over the years, we've certainly seen a great deal of congressional activity on Taiwan-related matters. I wonder if you could help frame for us what's going on right now. And I think we'd all also be particularly interested in what is uh, substantive and what sort of uh, um, uh, sense of Congress uh, as opposed to actionable and uh, difference making. So um, if you frame that for us in the next few minutes, I'd appreciate it. Sure, and thanks Rupert and, and the Heritage Foundation for, for inviting me um, and look forward to all of your questions. So I'll start by going back to the end of last year. My boss, um, Senator Risch, who's the ranking member on SFRC, introduced a bill called the Taiwan Deterrence Act, which would, which would use foreign military financing, so that's <coughs> a, a security assistance run by the State Department, and apply it to Taiwan. We provide FMF to countries all over the world, and I can go into that a little bit, um, but applying that tool that we have to Taiwan. The committee had multiple unclassified and classified hearings and briefings with the administration over the coming months. And um, we were supposed to yesterday mark up a um, bill um, called the Taiwan Policy Act, which included um, aspects of Senator Risch's bill, including the foreign military financing piece. That markup has been pushed until September due to uh, the NATO stuff on the floor yesterday. Um, but that's where we are at this current moment. Um, I think there's a few things I would say, and I really am going to focus on the substance um, rather than the sense of Congress, because I think that's really what, where we should be having our focus and, and certainly where, where my boss and, and others are focused. We need to be doing not sense of Congress things, real things with a sense of urgency to put more authorities and resources towards the situation that we face in the Taiwan Strait. And the priority that the committee has been putting on this issue and that, that my boss is putting on this issue really is in the security assistance space. So the Taiwan Policy Act um, that will mark up next month has the FMF program that I mentioned. Um, it would provide several billion dollars for foreign military financing to Taiwan to modernize its capabilities and for training, which is equally important um, as we heard in the keynote. Um, it would also provide an authority for a war reserve stockpile um, authorization, which we've used for Ukraine, which we've used for other, with other partners in the past. Um, 
it has a lot going on in terms of pushing arms sales out faster. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of interest across multiple committees in conducting oversight of the executive branch on that. And then finally, um, civilian defense and resilience, especially now that Taiwan has stood up this all-out defense mobilization agency. So the second point I want to make is what's animating this, right? And I, maybe it's obvious to this crowd, but I just think it's important to remind ourselves that none of this is a favor to anyone. This is what we're doing on the Hill is because it is in the national security and economic interests of the United States. I think we've all heard from many analysts, but I think it's true. You know, the consequences of China changing the status quo in Taiwan in terms of their ability to control the first island chain, to undermine the defense and security of Japan and therefore our alliance commitments, the, the fact that they would probably be able to dictate our trading relationships and economic engagement with the region, especially if you combine that with them possibly trying to get into TPP. These are all things that we, would make the region look like a very different place for the United States, not just on the security side, but also on the economic side and for the American economy. Um, and then the final thing I want to note going forward is, you know, these efforts that I'm talking about right now, for my boss's perspective, are not a messaging exercise, to your point about substance over symbolism. You know, we want this, he wants this to have a future. Um, so we're very flexible on how that looks, but we'll be working, you know, across, once we get through committee, uh, we will be working across committees and with other colleagues in the Senate um, on this going forward. So that's where we are right now and uh, happy to go into any detail on that. Yeah. Laura, just a follow up. Um, <clears throat> what have we learned about uh, security assistance to Ukraine over the last few months? that can potentially be useful in accelerating security assistance to Taiwan? What, what, what's out there that, that the, the, any model that's been created or that has evolved that could be neatly or relatively neatly applied to Taiwan? Sure, absolutely. I would say a few different things. The first thing is on the training side where you can really see that the investment that we made in training the Ukrainians for the last eight years has really paid off. And we started doing that, you know, obviously we did it after what happened in 2014, but still we did it earlier rather than later and built that up over time. And so this is not something where we can just wait. Um, and I would say the same thing for capability. Um, you know, the reason that we're calling for a foreign military financing program now is because we need to start having new, new ways to flow capability to Taiwan before the situation gets even worse. And by the way, I just want to say to you all that I think all of this is perfectly consistent with existing US policy. I can get to that in another in a minute, but I just think that we should keep that in mind as well. We have a very flexible, open policy when it comes to how we engage with Taiwan under the Taiwan Relations Act. The entire One China policy that we have um, is premised on the idea that Beijing would also be committed to peace and stability across the strait. And that is also very evident in the declassified note that President Reagan signed in 1982 about how there must be a permanent linkage between US policy on arms sales to Taiwan and the degree to which the threat from Beijing either increases or decreases. And I think we all know where we're at on that. Um, 
And so those are those are the few of the lessons. Um, I think another thing that we've we've learned from Ukraine is that when push comes to shove, we really can be flexible in getting capability quickly because we did move very quickly for our system to get Ukrainians what they needed. I'm not saying that we'll move as quickly. Maybe in this case, we're not exactly in the same situation at this current time, but we can get creative. And so that's part of what I think is behind what um, you know, SFRC, at least my boss is trying to do here is let's open some new doors. They're existing tools, right? We already have them, but let's open some new doors, new authorities, new ways that we can accomplish our goals in terms of getting capability and training to Taiwan. So those are the three main lessons that I have at least learned and that I think are prevalent across, you know, the hill as well. All right. Thank you so much. Dean, we obviously we're seeing in real time uh, media coverage of what's going on around Taiwan at the moment. The PRC response, so to speak, to Speaker Pelosi's visit to the island. A, a, a couple of questions to sort of tackle here. Um, how do we how should we differentiate as a community between what is the consistent path of escalation that has been going on to Lara's point, to Jack's point earlier about the behavior of the PRC and the violation of the original understandings that we had with China in the 70s and 80s that we would pursue jointly peace and security in the Strait. So how do we differentiate? And then as you, with your expertise, look at what the Chinese are doing, and I appreciate we've got several days, hopefully, but we'll see how, how long the PLA keeps this up. Um, what are you seeing? What are you learning about what the PLA are up to? What concerns does it raise for you? And what, what potential vulnerabilities are you seeing in the way in which they're behaving? Well, thank you for those questions. Um, I thought you'd give, provide some easier ones. Um, Not for you. So, <laughs> thanks. Um, with regards to the constant escalation by the Chinese, I think that what we are seeing is the ultimately the linkage of economics to politics. Um, it is striking that when we look at what the Chinese are doing right now off of Taiwan, <coughs> there is an interesting parallel, announcement of closure spaces, firing of missiles compared to 1996. And yet, today's China is a very different entity from the China of 1996. It is a China that is now the second largest GDP in the world. It is a China that is fundamentally integrated into global supply chains. It is a uh, China whose military, as General Keane pointed out, substantially outweighs us in various metrics. So in 1996, when China conducted its missile tests off of northern and southern Taiwan, what did the United States do? We sent two carrier battle groups to the region, and the second group in particular sent a distinct message to Beijing, you are outmatched. I think it is fair to say that no one at this point in the administration, in the Pentagon, among civilian war military leaders, is about to openly advocate sending two carrier battle groups directly into harm's way. Why? Because frankly, as the general said, the PLA of today is significantly different. I think that what this is saying from Beijing is you are outmatched. And that underlies, is the foundation for why China has been escalating, is that that balance of power, military but also economic and even to some extent political, is in Beijing's view shifting and sliding in its favor. Um, what am I 
spending my, my evenings and, and other times doing as I watch the Chinese. I think some of the interesting things to keep an eye out for is that this is, in some ways, a perfect opportunity for the Chinese to practice joint operations. And this is significant because for the PLA, this has been the core of their doctrinal evolution, their e training evolution, their equipment evolution of the last 30 years. This series of exercises is an, is an opportunity for them to really try out a variety of capabilities that they have slowly been acquiring among the services, led by the PLA rocket forces, arguably, with missiles flying over Taiwan, but with aircraft and ships. Again, 25 years ago, joint operations for the Chinese was a term that they were still exploring the meaning of. Now we are seeing them say, I mean, as a Star Wars fan, we who were once the student are now the master. Um, and I think that this is very worrisome insofar as it shows their evolution and growth. Are there weaknesses here, potentially? Um, I'm not sure we will see them, but areas that I would look for weaknesses would be in command and control. Every Chinese missile landed exactly where it was targeted. Of course it did. Um, at least the Chinese tell us that. Is that actually the case? What does the logistics look like to support this exercise? How long will Chinese aircraft and ships be down for maintenance after the exercise? Um, so these are things that I would keep an eye out for, mostly in the Chinese press, probably in the more specialized press. But these are areas that, if they do well in, should really scare us. Because the tip of the spear, as the general said, is worrisome. But the shaft of the spear, transportation, logistics, all those boring things that never make it into movies, but are really the core of military professionalism, are the areas where I think the Chinese may have made advances, and it's important to measure how much those have been. Thank you for that. Uh, Dean, um, well, the, the question related to us here, but I, it, it is also absolutely applicable to our, our friends, colleagues, and allies in Taiwan. Um, when, when, uh, if you were to put your shoes, put your feet, pardon me, in the shoes of the Ministry of National Defense, Taiwan's MND, um, how do you think they're experiencing this right now? Jack eloquently noted that while there's the significant attention on the D-Day style scenario, and I absolutely agree with him that a, a challenge we're in right now is that the discussion, public discussion here in the States is very much binary, peace, war. When in actuality, there are a range of different ways in which the Chinese can achieve the goal of absorbing Taiwan. Um, so from Taiwan's perspective, Dean, if you're looking at it through the, 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 the military prism, what are some of your thoughts? What is MND taking in right now? You spend time with them from time to time. How are they necessarily absorbing what they're observing? Well, I think the fact that there are missiles flying over the island um, is... Uh going to generate what is sometimes termed pucker factor. Yeah. Um, one, because of the possibility of, of accident, but two, because it is a statement by the Chinese of how they view Taiwan. We can fly missiles over you with impunity. Um, I think that they are hoping, not just MND, but the government in general is hoping for voices of support from the United States, but also perhaps from Europe and elsewhere to 
to make the accurate observation of the threat posed by China in conducting such behavior. It's notable that when North Korea fires missiles that fly over Japan, it's not just Japan that protests. It's South Korea, the United States, Europe, the UN, etc. Um, will there be any outcry? And I think that that is something that they're going to hope for. And third is that, of course, Chinese exercises work both ways. Uh, they are a display to intimidate China, but they are also an opportunity to learn for MND and hopefully for our own military. So it will be interesting to see the next iteration of Taiwanese exercises, if they in turn incorporate lessons learned from observing the Chinese, if the Chinese do X and MND's response in particular is not anti-X, but perhaps alpha or beta, something truly <coughs> asymmetrical that would work. I think that that would send a very interesting lesson to Beijing of it's great that you can do X, Y, or Z, understand that war is dynamic. And that perhaps is the one thing the Chinese military in particular is lacking, having not fought a war since 1979, is that war is ultimately a dynamic process, something the Russians for sure have learned in Ukraine. Yes, certainly. I heard on the radio this morning a, a, a Mike Tyson quote, and I think it was something along the lines of the, the fight plan doesn't last the first punch. And I just, I think to your point, it sort of strikes at that. We've got a wee bit of time for some Q&A. So if you have any <coughs> questions, please pop your hand up. Um, please keep the questions nice and concise. Uh, please identify who you are and then, and, then, uh, and then ask the question. Anybody? Oh, yes, this gentleman in the back here. Um, good afternoon. Um, my name is Dr. Cole, and I'm from the United Nations, and I want to thank everyone for inviting me. Um, we're quite concerned about Taiwan, and um, as a moderate green Republican, I find my North Star to be the Bible and the laws of the Bible and God giving us free will. The people of Taiwan should probably consider having a referendum openly saying what their free will is and hopefully if it's what I think it will be maybe the Biden administration can reinstate an unwritten rule that we are people of laws that are from biblical terms of free will and that we will support the unwritten rule that if the people don't want to be part of something or to be dominated, it's their free will via the vote not to be like that. Can a referendum happen soon? Just to clarify, a referendum on, you know, a formal declaration of independence? Is that what you're saying? Or a referendum on the future of Taiwan? Well, referendums on Taiwan happen all the time uh, on, a, on a pretty regular basis about a whole range of issues. So, um, just to... My question is about free will. So the Taiwanese, I think this should have a referendum on that they want to have free will. Whatever they define their referendum to be, not putting it in our terms as we say in the United Nations, you and I have a Western view of things. What's their view of free will that we could reinstate through the president giving a, an additional statement are we support free will and we're a nation of the Bible and of civil laws and biblical laws. It's their definition, not mine. Thank you. Yeah, great. 
Other questions? Yes, sir. I have a shorter one. Uh, Tony Capasso with Bloomberg News from Ms. Crouch. What two or three major sales are, would you consider are, are languishing at state, either waiting for uh, the FMF's clearance to pro pass or a direct commercial license to be granted? Sure. Thanks for the question. So I, I'm going to answer it a little bit more broadly. Um, in, terms of, in terms of sales, it really does depend on the case in terms of where we see the holdup. Um, but there's always a lot of finger pointing on this, but it really depends on the sale. Sometimes it's a State Department issue. Sometimes it's a DOD issue. Sometimes it's a Taiwan issue. Sometimes it's an industry issue. So from my vantage point on SFRC, we're seeing all of that depending on the sale. Um, so in that sense, I think there's a few things that we in Congress are really thinking about, and this is something where Again, I think partnership across committees is important because although FMS, as you know, is a State Department program, DOD is the implementer, so we all, we all have a role to play here. You know, we're thinking about certain ideas for how can we cut down the timelines, um, how can we, Congress, help cut down the timelines by providing, whether it's funding, hiring authority, other things that can, for, because, for example, if you don't have enough contracting officers to push cases through, then those are going to get hold, held up, right? So I think, you know, right now, my, one of my concerns is that, like I said, there is this finger pointing that it's all like, oh, it's all the government or it's all industry. It's, it's both. They both have things that they need to do. So where can Congress come in? I do feel, based on our discussions with the administration, that they are making efforts in both state and DOD to try to figure out where they can find um, some efficiencies and, and cut down on the government side. How long that takes is another matter. But in Congress, we also think, in addition to making sure we clear on sales you know, expeditiously, we also think that there are things that we can do to at least help cut down on the government side. And I think and hope, and you know, people who have followed FMS cases for a long time you know, have advised me that if we are able to do that, it will help industry to plan better in terms of you know, when they put things in, on, on production. So those are some of the things that we're really thinking about. Um, other than contracting officers, another thing that I think we really need to work on are tech disclosure policies. Sometimes these reviews take over a year and we just, in this kind of an environment, not just for Taiwan, but in the Indo-Pacific in general, we just can't we can't have that. We have to figure out how we can make that better. Not that the not that we want to just throw our tech out everywhere, right? But we need we need to protect it. But we also need to figure out how we can improve that process. Um, I mean, there are certainly things that are that are going to be delayed. Um, so, for example, a lot of the sales a lot of the sales that we're looking at right now there's a concern that you know, it could take a couple more years to sort of start the process, right? We do see sales where the delivery timelines are just way out to the right. Um, it's not that there's anything, I wouldn't point to one specific thing. It's something we need to look at across the board. Sure. I, I would add that the administration has, has engaged fully with the US Taiwan Business Council and its membership on exactly this issue, expediting the process uh, obviously, our members uh, are engaged with the U.S. government through FMS and DCS 
on, on all our security, uh, cust uh, security cooperation customers around the world. Uh, and there's, there is a great deal of opportunity to improve the way things are done uh, on both sides of the ledger and, and, of course, working with Congress to bring it all together. Uh, but it is a challenge and, and uh, th there, is a, there is a view that, that things can be done better and faster. We don't have time on our side. And we're just talking about, when we think about selling weapons to Taiwan, we're just talking about the process here in the States. Please don't forget that in Taiwan they have their own process, which is also 18 to 24 months. To, uh, and that's, that's uh, best case scenario to assess, process and uh, legislate uh, funds for, uh, for, for the procurement of weapons from the United States. Any other questions? Another question from the audience. Uh, yes, Tina. Hi. <laughs> is Taiwan safe? Yes, Taiwan is safe. Uh, uh, Political has, has an article which quoted you uh, about, you know, uh, uh, foreign firms are exiting Taiwan. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm asking this question. What is the risk? Yeah. yeah. I definitely didn't say that in Politico, by I the know, way. I know, yeah. That's what I know. Yeah. I actually said, what I said in, in Politico was that there's concern, C-suite level concern within the, within, within, uh, within the, the business community. Um, it's, as, it's as heightened as I've seen it in the years that I have been doing this, and it's my entire career. Um, and, and that is something that we should take note of. Um, is Taiwan still a safe and important place for the world's businesses to engage? 100%. There is so, we are so hugely vested, as Lara pointed out, in the economic health and well-being, the future economic health and well-being of Taiwan, that, that uh, it is a national security uh, issue for our country based on that alone. I don't want to be cavalier about what's going on in the Ukraine, but the economic ramifications of Taiwan being cut off from the global economy are vastly more significant than they are uh, with, the, with the challenge that the Ukrainians are facing with Mr. Mr. Putin's invasion. Um, but there is concern. Are we going to see it today and tomorrow? How are we going to see it today and tomorrow? We're not, um, because the decisions that large companies will make over deploying capital on the island are not going to be made in a moment or reactively. They're going to be assessed in an internal process. They're going to be presented to their boards of directors, and their boards of directors are going to look out, and they're going to determine whether Taiwan is the place they want to continue to deploy capital or whether the, perhaps they want to divest the money that they have to deploy, perhaps with Taiwan, or do they look at Southeast Asia? Do they look at South Asia, Eastern Europe? Um, I mentioned those areas because that's certainly uh, where some of the capital has, is now being deployed fully enough, not just because of the Taiwan Strait, um, tensions, but also the ramifications of COVID and uh, some of the lessons that we have learned about supply chain vulnerabilities in, the, in, in, in a COVID world. Uh, Walter, can I take a wee bit more time? Yeah. Um, more questions, please. Yes. The gentleman in the shirt. In the, of course, he's wearing a shirt. Um, <laughs> the purple shirt. Golly. Yeah. Oh. Uh, um, thank you so much. Um, I since Brian Harris with Defense News. Um, I sincerely apologize if this has been asked because I came a bit late. So if it has, feel free to ignore me. Move on to the next question. Um, I know, uh, or with FMS um, to Taiwan, um, some people have talked about the fact that prioritization of FMS is an issue. So, for example, like one one lawmaker gave an example that Saudi Arabia is ahead of Taiwan in the FMS queue. Uh, in some instances. Um, so I'm wondering if there are any specific examples you could point to of that being a factor, how big a factor you think it is, um, and how you go about addressing that. But again, if it's been addressed, please move on. It has not, Brian. Lara, would you like to leave tackle with that? And Dean, um, perhaps you could, if you could come at this, the, the, the question here, based on what Lara says, 
um, um, should Taiwan be ahead of Saudi Arabia? Should I think this is a discussion that we read about and, and some of us have together, is how should the queue work um, when uh, multiple foreign customers are buying a particular platform or system? If the threat is greater or the view that the threat is greater, should they jump the queue? So, Lara, please start, and then, Dean, if you'd crack at that. Sure, yeah. So I'll start, again, broadly speaking, which is I do, my personal view is that I do think <laughs> that as part of all the efforts that I'm talking about here, whether it's on FMS or all the other things that are outlined in, in the bill that, that SFRC is going to mark up, we do have to find some creativity in that regard and what you're talking about. And I know that sounds you know, like what people say about everything. I'm really not trying to dodge, but the executive branch is going to need to figure some of that out. But we also have to keep in mind um, that as we do that, we have to balance that with contract law, which is pretty important to the United States, right? We keep our contracts here. So we have to, we, it's something that we have to weigh. Um, I think there's a few different things to think about. Um, is there flexibility in our own bureaucracy and processes that we can look at? Are there things that we can discuss with industry as, you know, um, uh, as, as in terms of what LOAs are being developed or sort of the, the process of, of getting something ready to go. And then what can you know, a partner do? Um, for example, one issue that can come up in these types of cases is that one partner is willing to pay, um, and I'm, I'm, this is just generally speaking, one partner is willing to pay non-recurring engineering costs and another one might not be or might not be able to. So what do you do? And in that case, the, the industry is probably going to prioritize the country that can pay non-recurring engineering costs because that saves them money. So we need to look at those kinds of things too. And can we work with the other partner um, if we think it's a higher priority for them to go first? Can we work with that partner to bridge that gap? Um, or is there something that they can do budgetarily to help in that regard? These are all different things that I think we should look at, um, but certainly understand. And we, um, Senator Risch, not in this current bill, but in, in the China bill that we did last year, um, we, we've started the conversation and asked for more reporting from State Department on how they might do that, not just for Taiwan, but for Indo-Pacific partners writ, writ large. And there are definitely other members on Senate Foreign Relations. Um, Senator Rubio's bill includes stuff on this, for example. Um, who have pointed this out and, and are interested in this question. Um, I don't even pretend to understand the American arms sales process. <laughs> I understand, my, my limited understanding involves gold entrails and, and sacrifices, preferably not human. Um, that being said, um, I do think that there's a couple of things to consider. That arms sales to NATO countries have an advantage. There's a group of countries, they all have roughly the same procedures, so therefore a sale to one can proceed along well-defined patterns. There is obviously no such counterpart in the Pacific, which means every country is its own exercise. Um, and then on top of that is the reality that an F-16 sold to Taiwan is not the same as an F-16 sold to South Korea, it's not the same as one sold to the UAE. So jumping the queue, so to speak, is not simply, well, I'll just take those and put a different flag on the tail. It's a completely different electronic suite. It's a completely different set of avionics, weapons compatibility, etc. So in that context, it isn't that simple. It seems that simple. 
Now, obviously that's going to be a little different if you're talking about M16s and the like. Um, but unfortunately, modern warfare, I think um, maybe it was General Milley who said that there's something like 34 different subcomponents within a Stinger, each involving multiple microchips. So that's the supply chain side of things, coupled with the reality, again, of who gets what when. So is there an opportunity to uh, streamline things? Um, I was part of a lunch with, with Lara and some others. My understanding is that both sides, here I mean House and Senate, are working to try and address how can we make FMS more efficient? How can we make FMF more efficient? That I think will go a huge way towards improving the ability not to jump queue, but rather to make the whole process involve a few, you know, fewer goats. Um, and in that regard, I think that that ultimately benefits across the Indo-Pacific, because we will still be selling arms to Thailand and the Philippines and South Korea, alongside arms sales to Taiwan. That being said, I will note the following. Clearly, Ukraine has jumped the queue on certain things in the middle of a war. I suspect that with the ongoing tests and things like that, where systems are a little more generic, where there is more flexibility, and perhaps outside the FMS context, there may be an opportunity to widen the aperture and, going to the um, business side, allowing them to say, you know what, there are options here to get things into production faster, to transfer things faster, so long as government, frankly, gets out of the way. Can I add just a two-finger on that? Absolutely. Um, so I, you know more than you give yourself credit for. I completely agree. It is more complicated than it seems. You know, it, it can seem like, oh, we'll just snap our fingers and someone will move ahead. But it, it really is complicated for all the reasons that Dean said. I think also the other thing to think about in this context is what is our ultimate goal here, right? Our ultimate goal is to ensure that Taiwan is strengthened and is in the best possible position to thwart PLA objectives and to give ourselves options in terms of how we respond, which is not a decision that's going to be made by me. Um, that might involve, you know, prioritizing sales to other partners before Taiwan if we think that that strengthens our overall position. So I don't think we should also look at it in terms of, you know, if, at least within the Indo-Pacific, we don't need to look at it in terms of, well, Taiwan have to be first. We should be thinking about it in the context of if we're going to try to prioritize what is the best way to do that and is it, you know, selling something to Taiwan first? Is it another partner? We should, we should also keep that in mind. And so that's something that we will do as we explore this issue. There's an attempt to undertake, I think, in my opinion anyway, the most dramatic shift in, the, in, in how we approach arms sales and what we, change, what we, what we, uh, what we sell uh, since the, the, uh, the Bush administration in 01 and, the, and, and that list that was released. Um, I, I would encourage you all to think of it this way, that um, as, as that aircraft carrier does its, does its big shift, um, that's going to take a, a while, but we don't necessarily have time. This issue of sense of urgency is a real, is a, is a real action-forcing <laughs> aspect to all of this. So I would encourage you, when you think about FMS and the arms sales that we might get on the DSCA website over the next several years, to think about maybe some munitions, but mostly sustainment, where the real action will be, potentially, is what Lara and her colleagues are up to. And, and what potentially can be pushed through this autumn and into the early part of the winter, 
and then what that necessarily means for getting Taiwan stuff very quickly, uh, not through the regular FMS DCS process, which we all want to improve, but which is going to take time to do that. Another, it's two to, tracks, right? Yes, exactly. We need to be improving the FMS process, but the whole purpose, again, uh, in case just to restate myself, I guess, the whole purpose of the the effort, you know, of the Taiwan Deterrence Act last year, and I think what's behind the Taiwan Policy Act, and at least what my boss cares about in the Taiwan Policy Act, is as we pursue that, like Richard said, or I'm sorry, Rupert, on the uh, on the FMS side, that we also um, look at other opportunities, right? So that's why we're looking at WRSA. That's why we're looking at FMF. You know, that's why we should consider things like presidential drawdown authority, those types of tools as well, so that we're approaching it from many different angles. And that gives us flexibility to achieve our goal, which is to make sure that we get training and capability to where it needs to be, given the urgency. Yeah, that's right. Another quick question. Dave, yes, please. Thank you. Uh, Dave Sutton. Dave Sutton with uh, Lockheed Martin. Full disclosure, I work with Rupert closely on the council and appreciate all his work. So. Um, We've talked a lot about the, the when and the speed and the process, um, but we haven't talked about the what. Um, the general mentioned you know, that Taiwan's needs for a full range of capabilities across all phases of conflict. Uh, there seems to be a little bit of a focus in this town right now on arming Taiwan for what we've described as the most dangerous, and certainly it is a scenario, but not the most likely. Um, and in the meantime, we most complicate China's planning um, if we if we make Taiwan capable of complicating China's options in all phases of conflict. So, for instance, in a blockade or for efforts to kind of uh, mess with them in their airspace and their sea space. So they need, have a, a range of needs to include things that the administration currently has advocated for, asymmetric sorts of things like EW, uh, electronic warfare, uh, redundant communications, but also things the general mentioned, anti-submarine warfare, um, early warning. Um, command and control, those sorts of things. Um, we talk a lot about asymmetric things. I think a better term is asymmetric effects, which can be brought about by any number of, 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 uh, of, of um, platforms. But to get to the gist of my question here is we've talked about the, the when, but the what seems to, we have a process for evaluating that what, um, and it's called the FMS process. The country makes a request based on their understanding of their needs and their requirements. Um, there was a piece in Politico that pointed out the administration has sort of preempted that process by asking Taiwan just not, to not bother asking for some capabilities, um, which doesn't give the, U, the whole of the U.S. government a chance to kind of evaluate that. So is there a look at sort of making sure that we take into account Taiwan's own requirements, their perception of their requirements, as we, you know, kind of go back and forth and, and allow them to request what they see they need for all phases of conflict? Lara, how are you, how are you experiencing interaction directly with Taiwan or through the relationships and network that you work with, how, how would you uh, respond to Dave's question? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I had definitely have a few points on this. First, I agree that we are getting ourselves very much wrapped around the axle of asymmetric capabilities. Any capability can be used asymmetrically. You want to have, you want to have an asymmetric effect, as you put it, or basically you want to have an effect where you can't confront your enemy strength to strength. Right. So asymmetric, I think, is actually bringing some confusion to the uh, pro uh, kind of to the conversation. Um, we basically removed asymmetric capability references throughout the bill because of that. Um, and so 
um, what we're really trying to do here is advance a denial strategy. And we need to, like this week is showing us, while I do think we, do, we really do need to prioritize and think and plan for um, you know, the most dangerous scenario, which, which is in a full-on invasion, this week is also teaching us that we need to be looking at other courses of action as well. And that, you know, Rupert, I think you said earlier that there could be a com combination, you know, there could be limited military action combined with other forms of coercion, political, economic. We don't know exactly what it will look like, so we have to think about that. Um, this issue is a matter of oversight for the committee, for SFRC, um, and what we're really looking for is a few different things, is to what extent is our approach with Taiwan on the security relationship side, whether that's defense articles or something else, you know, collaborative versus dictatorial. Because the fact is that you, if you have a collaborative strategy with your partner, that's going to be politically sustainable for you and for them. Um, full disclosure, I'm his former research assistant, but Dan Blumenthal from AEI has a really good piece on this that came out a few months ago in the National Interest, where he uses his experience in kind of an alliance manager role in the executive branch to explain just how much communication and connectivity and interaction is required to manage a collaborative defense relationship. So we're definitely looking for that. Um, and then we're also, um, um, I think we're also, like I said, looking for while we, even while we talk to Taiwan about here what we think the priorities need to be and have that open conversation with them, we also need to allow room that things might not play out exactly as we think that they will as well. So that's what I mean by looking at courses of courses, different courses of action and considering that. And so those are some of the principles I think that are informing our oversight. But to get to the crux of it, yes, this matter is relevant to the committee. We are working on it. We have been working on it for a while. Um, and, um, and so it, and it's also built into the legislation in terms of some of the reporting requirements, but also in terms of the FMF program itself, which identifies that the purposes of the FMF program are to help accelerate Taiwan's modernization and ability to defend itself in the case of a full invasion, a cyber attack, other scenarios. We account for the fact that there could be multiple or combined <coughs> scenarios, and we need to make sure that our policy reflects that. Dean, if you've any thoughts on this, bring us home. Walt has given me the hairy eyeball. Actually, um, no, I, I certainly couldn't top what Laura said. Okay, <laughs> great. I, 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 I would just note um, that uh, on this in, in incredibly important point, we, it still is not clear on, on, the, on the front of U.S. policy and U.S. engagement with Taiwan just how much of this is cooperative and how much of it is directive. And I, I do think that we've got some ways to go, really, to get fully aligned with Taiwan on what is going on at the moment. Um, it's, it's all encouraging. Uh, we're certainly serious about what's going on. We're hugely blessed to have staffers like Lara and her colleagues up on the Hill working uh, very hard on this stuff. But it's, it's our piece of it all. It's a huge piece, but we need the Taiwan piece to fall in place too. They have to be on board with what we're doing. And being on board means cooperation, not direction. 
and I, 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 I think we've still got some headway to go there. Walter, it's just a privilege to work with you. Uh, you're such a good mate. Thank you very much for the opportunity to cooperate today. Um, uh, the US Taiwan Business Council has its Defense Industry Conference in September, uh, pardon me, in October, early part of October in Richmond. If you want to dive more, uh, I can't say more deeply because Lara and Dean took us incredibly deeply into this this afternoon. But um, if you want to continue to dive into this, join us uh, in the early part of October. We spend two days talking about this stuff. Uh, please join us at future Heritage Foundation and US Taiwan Business Council events. And thank you for your time today.